Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh out loud humor and hitting you between the eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants because here we go. All right, here we go. John chapter six, you with me? It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Um, many events, by the way, had taken place between the healing at the pools of Bethesda and this feeding of the 5,000. You need to understand that. Because do you remember, John is putting together this beautiful book for us because he has a certain purpose. What is the purpose? These things, he said, many other things happened. But these things I have written so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And so many events happened between the healing of the pool of Bethesda and the feeding of the 5,000. If you want to look at them, I wrote down some references for you. Um, Luke 6, 1 through 9, and Mark 3 through chapter 6, okay? Some of them I have actually referred to in our teaching. Do you remember me talking about the four great miracles in a row? Um, the fact of calming the storm, the demoniac, uh, uh, the hemorrhaging woman, Jairus' daughter. All these events have been happening, Okay. But this event is recorded in all four Gospels. He's already preached the Sermon on the Mount. He has already taught about the parables of the kingdom. And so a lot, they have seen a lot of things. And because of all they have seen and heard, this crowd hears that Jesus has come to the other side and they have literally walked around uh, the Sea of Galilee to come and be where he was. Um, it says in chapter three, I mean chapter three, verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. You know, I love this because I feel a little worn out today and it's good to know Jesus felt a little worn out too. Why? He's God, but he is fully man. He is fully man. And he has been at work. I mean, think about just even our last chapter of John, of all that Paso or that feast took out of him, the healing and, and the teaching that he did and the, um, all of the conversation he had with the Pharisees. I mean, he is at work. He, crowds are following. He's healing. He is working. And he needs some time away. I think we could just preach about that about having time away, alone with the Father, how you have to be filled up. You can't just constantly give out, right? That there has to be time where we sit and we just rest and we let the Lord fill in into our lives. And so that was his plan. He needed privacy and he needed time with his guys. Um, it says that he went up on a mountain. I love that because that's what I love to do. And so I saw that and I thought, you know, there is something spiritual about hiking um, because, I mean, that's, do you realize all their high places, all the temples were up on the high places, up on the mountains, like a, a closeness with God. But I also think it, it is a place of privacy because not a lot of people do it. 
right? You can kind of leave the crowds behind if you hike 1,600 vertical feet. And you're up there alone, but there is something about it. I don't know what to tell you about it. There is something about being alone at the top of a mountain, and it gives you perspective. It makes, kind of makes the world small, to be quite honest. And you look out over, <clears throat> and you spend time with God, and it puts things in perspective. And so I just thought that was a beautiful thing for me, that here he goes, he needs time away. He's putting everything in perspective. He goes up on a mountain, and it says that the Passover was approaching. Well, I'm going to tell you what, if the Passover is approaching, he does need to strengthen up. Because what kind of event is this always for him? He's coming into the Passover. There's going to be healing. The Jewish leaders are going to be there. There's going to be questioning. There's going to be opposition. And so he is preparing for that by being up on a mountain with his father, with his disciples alone. But it is also setting the stage for our story, letting us know that the Passover is coming. So these crowds, where are they headed? They're headed to Jerusalem, and they're headed for the Passover. And so in verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he knew what he was to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Hmm. I can't help uh, but reminisce over the words, lift up your eyes. Did that strike a chord in you? Are you beginning to hear phrases? Lift up your eyes. When did you hear that before? Do you remember? Samaritan woman. That's right. He told them to what? Lift up your eyes. And what was he saying? Look, look at this harvest that is coming, right? And so I couldn't help but think about that when I read, he lifted up his eyes and I wondered, is this the same kind of harvest? I mean, they were ready, right? The Samaritans were ready based on the testimony of the Samaritan woman and the teaching of Jesus. They had very little preconceived ideas, and they were ready to accept him. I wonder if this crowd is the same. Lift up your eyes. He told, um, it, by the way, a Mark, okay, so what I'm going to do, it's in four Gospels. Some details are in other Gospels that aren't in this one. So I want to point one out to you from Mark 6, 36. Because in Mark's gospel, we actually hear that the first response from the disciples is for Jesus to send the people away to find their own food, okay? So this would be the second thought we saw in John with Philip. The first one is, hey, you know, we need to break this party up. Um, we need to let these people go. They're going to start getting hungry, and we need to let them out before the restaurants close, that's the deal, which makes me laugh because, I don't know, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, there was like First United Methodist on one corner and First Southern Baptist on the other, and they would all compete to see who got out of church early enough so they could get to the restaurants faster. I couldn't help but think about my beautiful heritage that way, and you'd show up and they'd go, those dang Methodists, they let them out before us. Of course they did, you know? We were singing just as I am 10 times, so somebody would come down and get saved, as our stomach is growling, right? Anybody else grow up like that? I'm like, how many verses are we gonna sing of just as I am, okay? But so their first thought is like, listen, this is not our problem. This is not a problem we need to take on. We need to send these people home. 
They're gonna get hungry. They're traveling and they need, they need, to, they need to find food. Um, I think it's interesting what we see as a problem, Jesus often sees as an opportunity. You know, isn't that interesting? Um, but Jesus put it back on them and he says to them, you give them something to eat. And John lets us know who, who was actually giving it a thought. Philip. Remember, Jesus knows the thoughts of man. So he basically says, so what do you say, Philip? Maybe he already knew that Philip's mind was trying to figure out this problem and trying to solve it and add it up and think about how they could uh, fix this whole problem. But he asked him, and Philip basically says, well, according to my calculations, 200 days wages wouldn't be enough. How many of you are like that? You're big problem solvers. Yeah, you're fixers, and you're sitting there trying to figure it out. Before any, sometimes before it even comes up, you're already figuring out what to do, right? If you're a six on the Enneagram, you're solving problems other people don't even know are coming because you always live in the what if. So before you even say yes to something, you're solving the problem because you don't want to be caught unaware, all right? But then there are others of us, right, who are achievers, and we've got to achieve. If there's a problem, we have to fix it. And so it's very hard then for me to listen to a problem and just listen, right? And my kids used to have to say, mom, just listen. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I'm your mother. I'm trying to get you out of it, fool. Listen to what I have to say. You know, I, this is gonna work out for you. And so, but here he is. He's legit trying to add it up. Is this even a possibility? And he's like, he comes up with the answer after he considers the cost he goes, impossible, it's impossible. But we know, it says in the story, that this was a test. Well, what kind of test? Look at James 1, 2 through 4. You know this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why is it a test? Because when God puts a test, it is always to do what? Increase our or grow our faith, our trust, right? We, we know um, it, in verse 12, I have that underlined too because it goes with that. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under that. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Understand the difference in tempting and testing. This was a test, not to get them to fall in a trap, that's what the enemy does, but to what? Help grow their faith, right? And so uh, look at 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. That's easy. Once we find James, it's just next door, okay? 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Man, I wish I felt that little while right now. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, I know that one day is like a thousand days, but I'm telling you what, it, sometimes it doesn't seem like a little while. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he will produce in us will be something that brings him amazing glory. And so he is saying this, right, to test them, to increase their faith, to give them deeper understanding. That is what he is doing. I find it really interesting that he asks Philip. I thought about that for a while because when I think of Philip, I think about Philip's calling in John 1, 43 through 45. Do you remember what Philip said when he went to Nathaniel? Remember, he calls Philip, Philip follows, and he goes and finds Nathaniel, and this is what he says. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And so for Philip, he's like, this is him. This is the one that Moses wrote about. Well, that's really interesting to me because I love how John writes. Everything is tied together. You know how like I'll teach you something from one chapter and then we go back and look at the last part of the chapter before and it's like he's giving us, he just ties it all together so beautiful. Well, look at the last part of the chapter we were in last week. Look at the last part of five. It says in verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. Right? I just think it's so interesting all that comes together here. It's Philip. Philip is the one counting the cost. But Philip is the one that out of his mouth originally says, this is the one. This is the one that Moses wrote about. And Jesus has just said to all the religious leaders, Moses, no, actually Moses isn't going to be on your team. Moses is going to be, actually, the words of Moses will judge you because Moses knew me. He wrote about me. And so here you have this whole tie-in, and the beauty of the symbolism here is where are they going? Why? For Passover, okay, for Passover. So you have this whole idea of Passover. What's Passover? The Exodus, right? Being freed from bondage, being freed from death by the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death passed over when the blood was put on their doorpost. It's a whole idea, right, of atonement, the whole idea of being freed from bondage, uh, life over death. And this is what they're going to celebrate. And when you think of the Passover, you also think of who? Moses. And the fact that Moses led his people into freedom, into this desolate place, and then basically provided them what? God provided through Moses what? Manna. Manna in the desert. Okay, their daily bread. Do you understand that? So you have all of these things happening. You have at the end of chapter five, he refers to Moses and he says, Moses, Moses wrote about me. If you believed him, you would believe me because he wrote about me and you have Philip sitting here counting the cost, forgetting that he said, no, this is the one that Moses wrote about and you have the whole idea of this crowd traveling to go celebrate the Passover, which in their mind is freedom from bondage. It's the leadership of Moses. Moses, Moses, Moses. It is manna in the desert. All of this is floating in the beautiful background of this story. 
And you get to verse, uh, oh, and by the way, I thought it was really interesting because um, Mark 6 says something that is a little different that I love because if you think about the Passover and Moses leading them, right? At that time, they had this great leader. Now they're being led by blind guides. That's what Jesus calls the Pharisees. Oh, you're just a bunch of blind guides, right? But Mark 6, 34, it says that when Jesus saw the crowd, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He had compassion on them. So here they are on the way to the Passover, but yet when he looks out at them, he realizes they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have Moses. They have a bunch of blind guides. And he has compassion. And another thing I thought that I just kept thinking about, I couldn't get out of my mind, is you realize that in this story, the passage, what is it, how does it describe the place? It says, in that place, there was a lot of green grass. I don't know about you, but I feel like Psalm 23 is being read in the background of this story. I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to tie it like dogmatically, uh, tightly to this, but in the back of my mind, all I can say is he just said they were sheep without a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And we're about to have a storm and we're gonna understand. And he leads me beside the still waters. And so I just have, as I was studying this, see, this is the beauty of meditating on the scripture. Because as you're meditating on this, you get, oh, just glimpses of verses that you know that just all work together like beautiful artwork. I wonder if that's what life is gonna be like uh, when we get to the end and we see the whole masterpiece, something that you just saw a little piece of. You're just like, wow, that just fits together beautifully. And so I just, in my mind, I hear Psalm 23 in the back of this story because he's like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. So here they are on the way to the Passover at a beautiful place with green grass and they come and they've got freedom from bondage and Moses and all of this in their thoughts. And they are wondering about this Jesus. Verse eight says this. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I'm gonna tell you what. I love me some Andrew. I don't know what it is. I just have a real soft spot for Andrew. Um, I can't help but see Andrew himself almost a picture of this very situation. This is what I mean. Andrew seems like he's always in the background. Andrew is always bringing somebody to Jesus or something to Jesus. I just think he is that backstage guy. The guy that doesn't like to be up front, the guy that just likes to be one-on-one, -on -one, just meeting people. I, and by the way, they were from this area. And so I think that he was hanging back, he was visiting with people. He was saying hi to people. He was laughing with the kids. He knew the vibe. Therefore, he knew about the available food. But he says, what is this for so many? I wonder if sometimes he felt that about himself. I'm just small. Why maybe? 
Because every time we hear his name, he is described as what? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The lesser. Like, what could such a small thing do for so many people? What can such a small thing do? A small thing, you bring that small thing, you give that small thing, you let the master use this small thing, and he is gonna blow your mind, right? Because here, we see this this small thing through Andrew being brought to Jesus and 5,000 are fed. I still am not exactly sure why Peter jumped out of the boat, okay? So I'm just saying, we see all kinds of personalities going on here, and I just think this is a beautiful thing that it's about our availability, right? Because without him, we're not capable of anything. Nothing. He is the source. And so he says, I don't know what you can do with these, but here they are. (laughs) Kind of like, I'm not really sure why you picked me or what you can do with me, but here I am, right? What seemed impossible, David Platt says this, what seemed impossible to them, impossible to them was possible in Jesus. They were out in the middle of nowhere and they felt completely inadequate for the task. However, these men had no idea just how much they had for meeting the people's needs. It was like standing in front of Niagara Falls and still not being able to find anything to drink. I loved that when I read that. They have no idea what they're looking at. They still don't understand. He is the one who spoke all things into existence. There is nothing that does not have its beginning in him. And so they don't know. And so they're like, well, I don't know. I mean, this is an impossible situation. Here's what we have. See what you can do with it, Jesus. Uh, Swindoll says this, the size of the challenge should never be measured in terms of what we have to offer. It will never be enough. Man, I need to think about that. It will never be enough. Now, some people think, oh, well, I, I get that wholeheartedly. You know, certain personalities. Like, I I could never do that. It's never enough. But I'm going to tell you, it's other personalities, too, who think they might can be enough. You know, some people who feel like, oh, I don't have any talents to do things. Honestly, sometimes that just takes the pressure off of you. You're even, and so you're like, well, I'm not even going to step into that situation. I don't have the talent to do that. But then the other people who think, well, I actually have the talent to do some of this but they're scared to do it because they might fail. I, I think sometimes we look at people who we think are capable like, oh, that's nothing for them. No, it's a, it is everything for us. It doesn't matter if you have talent or you don't have talent or what. It, it's all about him. He has to show up. He has to do it. Even Jesus later on says, listen, I, my father draws. I present, I'm presenting to you. You're looking straight at me, but he is the one who draws those unto himself and those who he draws will come. And so sometimes I have to remember when I'm trying to be enough, I'm not enough. It does not all fall on my shoulders. I'm not gonna teach it well enough. I'm not gonna understand it well enough. Does anybody else feel that way sometimes? It's not on my shoulders. It's not about me. It is my willingness to put in the work, to understand it, to meditate on it, and to present it out and to watch what he does with it. 
But do you know how much sometimes as a speaker you stress? Oh, I'm going to suck. I'm going to be terrible today. Oh, I was great last week. They thought I was so wonderful. This week's going to be lame. I don't even know what I'm talking about this week. And you, and you look and you expect your pastors to be just on every week. And they're like, ah, I can't do it. Exactly. You can't do it. Girl, go get a coffee and relax for a minute. You're getting yourself all wound up. It, it's not about you. It's never been about you. It will never be enough. Furthermore, provision is God's responsibility, not ours. That's what Swindoll says. He is the one. And I, I love it because in verse 10 through 11, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, which we know with women and children, it could be anywhere up to 20,000 people, okay, at the highest. Um, and Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thing, thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Have the people sit down. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had taken them, he gave thanks. Fully knowing Jesus gave thanks for God's provision. Do you give thanks for God's provision? At my church this last week, there was a, a sermon on contentment. It was marvelous. It was so good. And it really gave you a lot to think about. Contentment. Are we grateful for what we have? Or are we always after more? I really want you to spend some time here this week. Time of gratitude to think about it. What is this draw to have more and more and more? What are you grateful for? Is your mind constantly thinking about what you don't have and what you, what you would like to have? Or do you really spend time? Do you know how blessed we are as a people? It, it is not just about for me, am I clothed? I could clothe all of you in this room. Right? Yes, I'm clothed. I'm clothed with abundance. Food, feeding our bellies. Do you have choices? Well, I'm going to tell you, before I went to the grocery store yesterday, I didn't have any choices. I have been so lazy lately. I don't know if anybody, I literally went to the bottom of my freezer and found some stinking fried rice the other night because I was too tired to go to the grocery store. Is anybody with me? I'm over it. I'm so, I just couldn't do it. But, but now I've been. So, but what I'm saying, we have choice. We have all kinds of choice. I mean, think about what all we have. What do we need? What do we need? Do we spend enough time thanking him for his provision? Have people over to your house because you don't like the way your house looks? What part of God's provision isn't good enough for you? If they're there to see your house, they're there to see you. Okay, now I'm not telling you don't clean. Girl, clean, whatever. But, but it's not about that, right? I really want to challenge you this week to think about what you're grateful for. What he has given you, your friends, your family, your church, a place to live, people who care about you, clothes. I mean, honestly, most of us can we, we got tomorrow handled. Maybe not three days down the road, but tomorrow. 
And so we have a lot to be grateful for. He took what was there. He took what God had provided and he thanked God for it. And then out of that, he broke. Our passage says Jesus distributed them, but Matthew clarifies he did so through the hands of the disciples, okay? So when you look in ours, it says that Jesus himself distributed it. But in Matthew 14 and the others, it says, no, how did he actually distribute? Through the hands of the disciples. It says he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. He was allowing the disciples to do something they could not do in their own power and with their own resources. What a blessing. Remember, the miracle took place in the Savior's hands. Their job was to distribute it to the people. I need to remember that, right? It is about what God does. The miracle was in his hands, right? They had the privilege of distributing it. And I need to remember, that's just our job. God's job, the Holy Spirit's job, is to speak to the heart of people, to draw them, you know? But I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm gonna nominate everybody I see. I'm gonna spread it. I'm gonna distribute it. And, and that, that is our job. And when you think of it that way, seriously, what are you worried about? Why do you not share? Why do you not share the gospel? I want you to think about that. I didn't even plan to ask it. Why, why don't you speak about it? Is it because you're never in a situation where you now you've isolated yourself so much you're not even in the world? You don't even, you think everybody around you knows Jesus? Well, if that's the case, you need to get out and do something. He didn't ask us to isolate in a bubble and to pull back. We are to be in the world, but not of it. And that's gonna be messy, by the way. That's all I gotta say. It's gonna be messy. It's hard to be in the world and not of it. We're gonna struggle with it. But we've got to distribute the message. And so we have to be out there. So I'm asking some of you, are you even out there? Are you out in the community? Are you sitting at home, storing it up for yourself? Do you not know what you would say? Is that, is that the problem? Well, think through it. Spend some time. What do you believe in? Why? What would you say when given the opportunity? Because if you're prepared, I promise you, you're gonna take the opportunity more you will. And remember, you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. What if I mess up? Really? You're not going to mess up. It's your job to distribute. It's his job to teach. I saw that firsthand. I don't know if y'all ever heard of anything called EE, Evangelism Explosion. It, it was back in, the, back in the day. And I was trained with Evangelism Explosion. It's this whole outline of how to share the gospel. I'm not going to knock it because it's a great outline. Um, but you have to make it your own, okay? And I was trained in it, and we'd go knock on doors, and we'd share the gospel and different stuff. And then, you know, after that, I became a, a trainer of EE. And so young people would go with me, and we would go in. And y'all, never forget it. I had my, my trainees, and I go in this one. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's right up my alley. I had the thing memorized. I had the stories I liked. And I could do it. And I went into this one house, and I mean... I was good. 
I presented that stuff. It made total sense. It was amazing. They laughed when they were supposed to laugh. My trainees were sitting back going, oh, if we could only share the gospel like Shannon. And then I got to the place where I said, would you like to make a decision? The answer was not really, no. And then the next week, we go out and uh, I start, I don't even know what I did. Not one bit of it made sense. I was out of my mind. I, I, I was all over the place. I went from point A to this, to that, to that. I have no idea what happened. And at one point at the end, you're supposed to say, now, do you understand everything I've said to you? And I asked that question. And do you know that shockingly they said yes? And I thought, how can you? I don't understand what I have told you. My trainees were a nervous wreck. They'd never seen me fall off the rails like that. I'm like, they were like, we didn't know where you were going, where, what in the world. It was a disaster. And when I said, do you understand everything I have told you? This person said, yes. And I, <laughs> I thought, okay. I said, well, would you like to accept Christ tonight? And that person said, yes. And I led them to accept Jesus. And I walked out of there and I said, it just goes to show you. Literally, I could have sang the alphabet tonight, I believe, and the Holy Spirit would have led this person to Christ. The other guy, when I left, he said, my gosh, you're such a great speaker. If you were ever at a pastor at a church, I'd go to that church. But he did not meet Jesus. It didn't matter. And over here, I was nonsense. And they got it. The point is the miracle was in the hands of Jesus. He gave them the privilege to distribute it. Go for it. Bring up the subject. Best thing, tell your testimony. Tell what Christ has done in your life. Make them hunger after such things. The miracle took place in the Savior's hands. I love it. In Mark 6, 41, it says he broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them and divided up the two fish amongst them all. The Creator's hand at work Meeting our need, endless supply. Do you get it? I don't know how it took place, but in my mind, the way I picture it is he just keeps breaking and giving, breaking and giving, breaking and giving. I do not see him creating just voila, baskets of fish, voila. Nope, he just sits there and out of the one, he just keeps creating and creating and creating and they keep coming back and getting and it is the endless supply that all things come through him and it is the perfect supply. It says that they were full. They were full. I could not help but blessed are those who hunger for they will be satisfied and that is an ongoing hunger by the way. I used to always describe it as young, <clears throat> to young people. My daughter, Hillary, loves steak more than anybody I've ever met in my life, other than my mother. Um, loves it. When she was young, you could ask her, what do you want for dinner? What do you want for your birthday dinner? Whatever. It was always steak. And that little thing could put a steak away like you've never seen. And I mean, she would be so full. She was hilarious. She would sit back and just let her food baby hang out. And undo her pants and just like, I'm talking stuff to the gills. But the minute the next day came, if I had said to her, do you want a steak? She'd be like, I'm in, let's go. It's that kind of hunger. We hunger and hunger and he fills us up to where we got a food belly. We have to unbutton our pants. We just cannot even take anymore. But guess what? It's a hunger though, that once that's digested, 
We just want some more. He fills up. If you hunger after me, you will be satisfied. Said when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I had lots of thoughts about this, gathering up the leftover fragments. There were 12 baskets. Now, the basket here, the word used is, is more of like an individual basket, like an individual would carry food. On the feeding of the 4,000, it was like a giant basket, like a person could be in. But these are like smaller baskets, individual baskets. And how many did they gather? 12. And yes, it could definitely symbolize the 12 tribes that he was enough. Um, he, was, uh, he was the sustenance. He was enough. He was the Messiah for Israel. And if you compare that to feeding of the 4,000 and seven, it does mean whole, complete, but it can also represent the seven Gentile nations. I mean, all of that is there, but I think it is kind of more personal. How many disciples were there? Twelve. And at the end of the day, they went and gathered up. And how many baskets were there? Twelve. And so it's this idea of, remember, they're serving, serving, serving. Do you understand what a day that was? If you think about how many people are there and that the 12 disciples are serving, and not that other people didn't join in, but basically they kind of touched a thousand people that day each. I mean, they were serving and serving and serving, but at the end of the day, what is he saying? But do not forget, I will provide for you. I will provide for your needs. And you know what? That's awesome to know. Because as you're serving and serving and serving, you're doing what God's asked you to do, it's really nice to know, to rely on, you know what, Shannon, I got you. It's not your job. You serve, you serve, you do what I've called you to do. I got you. I will provide for you. And, and they got to see that. I will provide. Do you know how hard it is? And, and I see myself in this scene because they're going to have an opportunity, God actually takes them out of it, to where they could get swept up in popularity and crowd and becoming known. I call them the boys in the band, okay? Um, but he, he whisked them out before that. I will provide for you. It is very hard to be in ministry and business. It is an iffy thing. I think churches have to be aware of it. Ministers have to be aware of it. It's a hard combination. For example, when you write a Bible study and you just give it to God and go do whatever you want with it, but then your publisher says you need to get stuff out on Instagram. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's always a thing, and there's always a rub of what is just ministry and business, and how does that work? And when it always comes to me, I never asked to do any of this, to be quite honest. I don't even know how I got here. All I did was teach Bible in school and be willing to walk through doors that open. That's it, and do the same thing. And so I get a little wiggy when I start thinking, no, I'm gonna manufacture this situation. I can't do it because it makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, Lord, this is yours. If I just keep walking through doors that you open and I keep ministering, you have said what? There's plenty. I will provide. 
It just shows us that you just keep serving God, you keep dishing out the miracle that he provides, and he will provide. I know what you need. I know what you need, and I will give it. And so I think it's beautiful. Um, Also, do you realize that he wouldn't let the leftovers lay there? What does that remind you of? Remember, we're talking Passover, we're headed there. Green grass, Moses, freedom, manna. What does it remind you of? What was the deal with the manna? They weren't allowed to have leftovers. Do you remember that? No leftovers. What happened if they tried to keep the manna and it was leftover? Yeah, it would go bad. It'd get gross stuff in it. Okay, and so no, nothing went to waste. It reminded me, remember, he's going to say later on that this bread represents who? Him. He is the bread from heaven. The manna represented who? The Passover lamb represented who? And what happened with the leftovers of that? They, weren't, they burned them with the fire. There were no leftovers. It was the absolute perfect amount. Every part given was used. None of it went to waste. I love that. The fact he knew exactly what the need was and he met that need. He met the need of the crowd and he met the need of the 12 and there would be no leftovers, nothing left wasted. Nothing about Jesus is wasted. Verse 14 says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Aha. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Hmm. A prophet like Moses. Oh, they're beginning to connect the dots. Oh, my goodness. We're on the way to Passover, Passover. Freedom from bondage. We just have... Did you see what just happened? We just had a miraculous feeding. (gasps) Could this be? It's like this aha moment. He is the prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, right? Let's look at it, where he tells. What's Deuteronomy about? I'm always asking y'all. Why is it called the second law? The young generation has grown up, right? God doesn't force anybody to have a relationship. He always asks. So what was offered to the first generation must be offered to the second generation. So Moses goes through the entire law again and basically says, will you marry me? That's Deuteronomy, okay, just so you know. So it says this, Deuteronomy 18, starting in 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. Verse 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Aha, this must be the prophet like Moses. And they're beginning to see. The provision of food is reminding them of Moses and the manna. They've been waiting for a Messiah. Now this man has healed their sick, raised their dead, and filled their bellies. They wanted an earthly deliverer like Moses, who freed their forefathers from Egypt. And this man had surely come to establish a kingdom and to free them from who? 
the Romans. And so surely he was their king. They, I mean, think about it. If he was their king, they would never want for food. They would never have to think about illness. They could march right now on Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and, and just have a perfect welfare state. That's what they're wanting. And this is what is stewing in their minds. And then Jesus does the craziest thing. We aren't even going to get to the storm today. I've been thinking about the storm for two days. We're not going to get. He literally, according to the other gospels, we're going to see, and John, it doesn't give us the detail. He literally knows their thoughts. Now, the disciples don't. They may be seeing some things, but he knows their thoughts that they are going to come together and try to make him king by force. Before that even starts, the disciples have gathered up the 12 baskets, and now he says, okay, thanks, boys, off with you. And he literally commands them to go get in a boat and to head to the other side. But wait a minute, the event is not over. Oh, no, it's over for you. Get in the boat, and you need to go to the other side. And it says at that point, he closes the night out on his own. He dismisses the crowd on his own, and then he goes up to the mountain to pray. Wait a minute. What are they thinking? They're like, excuse me? We just saw, I mean, this, this is the best thing we've had so far. This is like a corporate miracle. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the biggest crowd we've ever been a part of. We can tell they're buying in. It's on. It's about to happen. This is the night we've been waiting for, and it's not even over, and we have served diligently and obediently, and now we don't even get to finish out the night. Can you imagine? You're going to close it, and we're just going to go on. You just go on, and you just go to the other side wait a minute, we understand that you're the star, but we're the boys in the band. We didn't even get to take a victory lap. I mean, y'all, the best night of the event for a speaker, the best time of an event is when it's all done and everybody goes, oh, that was so good. Shannon, great job. That was amazing. Oh, let me tell you what God did in my life tonight through what you, they got none of it. None of it. It's really interesting if you think about it. He was not going to let them get swept up in the winds of this crowd. But then he turns around and lets them get swept up in the winds of a storm. I think that is really interesting. And here's why I think it's true. Because if he had allowed the disciples to get swept up in the winds of the crowd, I think it would have added to their confusion about who he really was and what he came to do. Remember, these young men were also Jewish. They had all of these same preconceived ideas about what the Messiah would be. And now this was going to feed, this would just feed the frenzy right here. And so this storm would have caused confusion and probably temptation. And what do we know? What did we read in James? He doesn't what? He doesn't tempt us to fall. He doesn't put a trap ahead. He tests us with the purpose that that test will increase our what? Our faith, our trust. 
And so, but he does allow them to get swept up in the winds of the storm. Why? Because I think that storm, it's not gonna, I mean, there may be confusion in it, but that storm was brought so that they could have clarity. That storm was brought so that their trust could be increased. That storm was given so it could be an opportunity for teaching, not an opportunity for temptation. I cannot help but see Jesus as this amazing teacher, father to these young disciples. I can't help but see it because there are some things we guard our children from because they know that that we know that they would be traps. They would lead to great confusion. They're not ready. They don't need that temptation. But then there better be other things, what? That we give them a little rope. We give them a little rope so that they can go through some storms. Why? So they can learn, so that they can have some clarity about who God really is, so that they can increase their faith. And I can't help but see this as a picture of those two different things. And I'm telling you right now, if you do not allow your kids to have some rope, be careful. Because storms are coming. In this world, you will have trouble. I would like to tell you that if you're obedient enough, you can just skirt through this life and you won't experience it. That didn't work out. You're going to experience it. And our job is to teach them and to mature them and to help them understand who God is. And that is not always through our words. They have to learn to experience him. And the best way we experience him a lot of times is what? Through storms, through struggle. And so we're about to see them go through this storm. Now here's some things to think about. So I think it is very interesting that this storm is placed in the middle of this huge event of the feeding of the 5,000. It is in the middle of the actual event between that and all of the communication about it. So God has to have a purpose in this storm for the disciples. And by the way, this is a private sign. It is a private miracle that they're going to experience. So remember here, he is, we have all of this, the Passover, Moses, the great prophet to come, manna, the whole miraculous feeding. They're on their way. They want him to be the king. And by the way, Passover would be the time. It would be the time to march in and the Messiah to take his place. There were lots of false messiahs and they like to instigate things at the time of the feast. And so they're like, this is perfect. Can you imagine them all marching in behind? But yet he sends his disciples away, not to be a part of that, but they're gonna go through a different storm. And that storm is gonna remind them of who he is. And I'm telling you, this storm is awesome. I have lots of questions about this storm, okay? In this one, things for you to think of, How many times have you heard uh, preachers only preach about the only part of this storm is how awesome Peter's faith was? 
that he got out of the boat. There's probably more lessons about that with this storm. That's not the full lesson of this storm. I can't tell you why he got out of the boat. I really can't. It's a, there's some amazing, I can speculate, there's some amazing parts of why he got out of the boat. But to be quite honest, I respect the guys who stayed in the boat and kept rowing. Because if you remember, God commanded them to get in the boat and get to the other side. And they obediently stayed in that boat and rowed for nine dang hours against the storm. And I want you to think about this as you're pondering for next week. Do you think that every time God sends you out, it's going to be smooth sailing? <laughs> that if you're in God's will, oh, the wind will be at your back, girlfriend. That's not the case. Very often, he sends you out and the wind is in your face. And so we're going to look at that, at that storm. What are some of the takeaways today? The miracle is in God's hands. He is the miracle worker. We bring him what we have. We are grateful for what he has given. And he performs a miracle in us and we distribute it. And do you understand what it is, the blessing of being a part of that distribution? To give it out and him say, listen, I got you. I got you. He is the source for everything we need. He is the source. We are just like the Israelites. We get wrapped up in what God can do for us. We even preach it. It's not right. It is, this is not our home. It is not about storing up stuff here that moths will destroy, thieves will rob. No, it is not about that. This is not our home. We're going to have trouble here. The wind is going to be in our face. We have a glorious hope and a future. He was always pointing their eyes there. And if you think for one minute, I can't be Peter walking on water one minute and a sinking stone the next. Yeah, really? And so we're going to see that. But he is everything you need. This week, spend some time in gratitude. What have you been given? Give it to him. Let him break it and multiply it. Be used Give it away. Give what you have away. Because what is he going to tell you in the end? I've provided for you. I've provided for you perfectly. Give it away. And so we'll continue this story. The best part is yet to come uh, next week with the storm. And then we will look at the section where Jesus literally says, I am the bread from heaven. And they are appalled. Worse to eat your flesh and drink your blood? Like, are you kidding? And at that point, many left him. What do you think the purpose of that storm was? Some hard stuff was coming on shore. They needed to settle some stuff in the storm. And so we'll continue. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Um, God, I pray that they would meditate on it. I pray that they would consider all that they're grateful for. I pray, God, that they would uh, realize in so many ways uh, they are enough. I I'm enough for you, Lord. You love me completely. But when it comes to miraculous, it's not, 
It's not about me. I will never be enough to get the job done. It is you working through me. I distribute this miracle that I've experienced. I offer the bread of life to those around. Um, But when I do, I have to rely on the fact that everything I need, the source for everything I need is you. And so God, teach us to trust. And Lord, thank you for storms. Thank you for storms that clarify, that grow our faith, that make us stronger. Um, Lord, help us rejoice in them because they, they really bring us onto a shore we never expected. And so, Lord, just be with these women as we leave. Um, be real in their lives. Draw them to a closer connection with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.